Hello and welcome. You're listening to Epic Podcast, Emergency Preparedness in Canada. My name is Grayson, and this episode is entitled Logistical Nightmares, Connecting Community Resources in Disaster. In this special Emergency Preparedness Week episode, we'll hear from a panel of disaster logisticians as they recount their lived experiences and disaster stories of managing resources during emergencies. We'll also be exploring a very Canadian platform which is working to make the process of sourcing disaster resources a little easier called Emergency Management Logistics Canada. All this and more on this episode of Epic Podcast, Current, Relevant, Canadian. I have with me Dr. Joshua Bazanson, my, my co-host and co-teammate of Task Force 2, Tarina College and Perrin Goodyear, as well as Scott Cameron, all on the line to talk about logistical nightmares. Josh, we're going to start with you. I understand you're up in the Yukon recently as a log section chief. Yeah. So, Grayson, anybody who listens to the show knows that, uh, you know, my passion is I'm a planning guy. I like to joke that I've got a few planning P's uh, tattooed on me in various strategic locations. Um, but in this deployment, as part of an IMT, I actually got uh, slotted into a uh, logistics chief role, which is a, which was a great learning opportunity for me. And, and since then, now I have hashtag logs for life as my uh, new tattoo. So I am uh, uh, very, very um, uh, keen and, and eager to, to master the world of logistics, which is, uh, I think, why today's podcast is so important. So um, I'll tell my quick story just to kind of uh, set the frame. Uh, so I was up as a logistics chief for the Yukon flood response uh, this past summer. And uh, you can imagine working up in a remote location like Whitehorse uh, uh, gives a lot of unique logistical challenges. The supply chains um, I would say are not robust at baseline for the Yukon and uh, certainly uh, large order procurement and trying to you know source things uh, technical goods rapidly can be a challenge and during this deployment we actually ordered things like a bridge we had to actually bring up a, a bridge to get heavy equipment uh, through to a, a flooded area and uh, you know actually literally moved a bridge up from Grand Prairie to a, a portable bridge that can be deployed. We had to source uh, hundreds and hundreds of meters of floating hazmat boom for, for an oil spill or a, or a gasoline spill, I should say rather. Um, so some unique challenges and you know I since since this event you know I've gone gone on to learn that uh, supply chain is a its own field right like you can become a certified supply chain manager there's actually undergrad and master's programs just to be a supply chain expert and it's one of you know the top uh, in-demand fields these days so I'm, I'm certainly by no means a supply chain expert but what I did learn was uh, the importance of creativity and being able to source things alternate ways and thinking of you know, unless there's a law of physics preventing us from moving this thing, it's probably just either a people person, a money problem or a policy problem that we can overcome. And uh, so a lot of my conference calls were going through those sort of things, which involved waking people up in the middle of the night, you know, finding alternate suppliers, looking at maybe we can get half the order from one supplier and half from the other and making sure they're compatible, uh, things like that. So doing any disaster logistics is a challenge, but when you add that into a remote location, uh, especially like Canada has so many uh, remote locations to offer, it, it definitely adds a, an extra layer of complexity. Josh, did you find that you ordered a lot from local resources or was this all coming in from quite far away? 
Great point. Yeah. So we tried to, as much by necessity, to order from local supply chains as much as possible. And, you know, this ranged from very small items, like I'd get resource requests for, we need five dry suits, which, you know, in any other deployment that, you know, have been involved in, we can source five dry suits in an hour and, and get them wherever they need to go. In, in Whitehorse, uh, on a Friday afternoon, there, there's one sporting goods store and they were out of dry suits. So where else can we source them? And we had to go through local uh, rafting companies and just thinking, who else might own a dry suit? And we rented them from an outdoor guide shop and uh, they met the requirements that our safety uh, officer signed off on. We you know, put ads on Twitter for, for some of these locally sourced goods where we needed you know, a few extra bobcats and we tapped out the bobcat supply and and uh, it was a lot of a uh, uh, oh you know bob down the road uh, has a bobcat and and that, still i think i have a contact in my phone which is bobcat bill because he was my surge capacity when we ran out of the official government-owned bobcats i just said oh i know a guy yeah bobcat bill i'll get you a bobcat out there in a few hours so um those kind of non-traditional sourcing things you know there was no um procurement process, so to speak. It was me on the cell phone. But then going up to the larger purchases, which are, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars, that we still had to follow all the government procurement rules, which can be a challenge when you have different agencies. We we had Wildfire with their, they have a procurement process through their uh, Wildfire Warehouse. Uh, then layer on top of that, um, the territorial government's procurement process and, and those different teams trying to you know, get their processes to align, issuing credit cards and trying to figure out what people's spending authority ought to be, which is always a, a nebulous task on a disaster. You know, how much do you trust somebody to, to just give them a million dollar credit card? Yeah, the point of the story is we tried to get local as much as we could, but by necessity, sometimes we had to go outside of the territory. Everyone should have a friend named Bobcat Bill. And sourcing local solutions even if they are creative and kind of outside the norm, I think is probably very important, not only for expedient resource delivery and whatnot, but also to involve the community. So lots of lessons there, Josh, thanks so much. I'm gonna turn it over to Tarina. I'd love to hear your stories about the recent atmospheric rivers in BC. Thank you. Um, my name is Tarina. I'm an emergency management specialist for Fraser Valley Regional District. And uh, I'm also a board director with the BC Association of Emergency Managers. We in the FVRD have had some really interesting uh, atmospheric river events, both in 2020 as well as 2021. And uh, we are a government responsible for 12,000 square kilometers of rural and sparsely populated pockets of populations. A lot of areas that have one way in, one way out. And uh, we draw upon resources that are within cities and so we get these challenges where we need goods, we need to know where they are, we need to know about all the uh, bobcat bills that exist in, in the end of the or at the end of the road neighborhood, and um, we need to know who's willing to play at the time that they need to play, because we can't always draw upon the necessary supports from those cities and, and urban areas, especially in an event like an atmospheric river where everybody is equally impacted, every authority is equally impacted. And so it certainly caused no shortage of challenge for us in both the 2020 atmospheric river and the 2021 atmospheric rivers when roads washed out and necessary resources to stabilize incidents couldn't actually get into the areas of impact. Also within our regional district, we, we don't have a procurement branch. We don't have any staff dedicated to resource allocation, resource sourcing, and uh, specific contracting. Every senior manager, every manager, and every supervisor are responsible for their own 
whereas the neighboring cities would have their own procurement branches. So we honestly don't have a, a really simple, straightforward way of connecting the dots to know when we're duplicating the efforts of one another, when we're drawing upon the same services. And um, we look forward to building out tools that are going to help us fix those problems. Do you have any particular case studies that were interesting that popped up during the, the atmospheric rivers? Any bobcat bills in your world? We have plenty of rural residents that have their own farm equipment. And many, many offers were made through our EOC to provide those tools and resources. What that brought us to is the policy challenges relevant to logistical procurement and um, some of the limitations that we face in procuring a bobcat bill or a really good neighbor and neighbor ally if they don't have appropriate insurance, if they don't have the appropriate uh, workers' safety or OSHA-regulated numbers for registration. It would be really phenomenal to find greater ways to pre-onboard those type of neighborly resources and understand what type of supporting documentation they have, if any at all, in advance of needing to call upon them. It became really challenging through our EOC to handle the amount of offers for assistance and our governance model isn't well understood either. So we would have a lot of offers coming in of agencies and organizations, vendors willing to offer assistance in the areas that they exist within the member municipalities with their business or where their trucks and assets and equipment were with this assumption that we're the parent entity over those municipalities and, and we're not. We provide services in the rural areas. And so when you imagine the scope and scale of something like what the city of Abbotsford was going through with the Sumas prairie flooding, they just didn't have the time for us to be able to even package up the offers of assistance and pass those onward because they have their own procurement team. They have their own processes and procedures. And so all the best offers of assistance occasionally get lost in the amount of information brought into an EOC as you're prioritizing life safety and incident stabilization. I think there's a real balance between being creative and incorporating community resources and then the kind of necessary bureaucracy and insurance and checks and balances and safety that needs to go with that. And Trina, you hit on something big there is there's an idea of getting as much as you can done beforehand, but also the flexibility in the moment will always be necessary. Adaptability and flexibility are really important. The reality is we're dealing with disasters and policies are not always built to represent the disaster forum. So it's, it's good to be able to figure out what the adaptability is and what the flexibility can be so that we can see beyond the box in front of us and know when we can flex on those things. Speaking of adaptability and flexibility, over to Perrin Goodyear with the Salvation Army. Tell us about your logistical nightmares and stories. There's a number of them. And I know Joshua mentioned earlier about bringing in a bridge. I've never had to do anything quite that extreme. But, you know, the Salvation Army, one of our key roles during disaster response is food service. And we have our canteen trucks, which are self-equipped kitchens so that go into the remotest of areas and still be able to operate. Um, however, one of the things we learned during the 2021 floods in, in BC was some of the other logistical challenges. And the example I would use is the community of hope, which was completely cut off because of the way that the floods went. Um, so one of the unique adaptability things we had to do was figure out how can we still provide support to that community when we have no way to get a truck in there. 
and, and we actually used a helicopter and airlifted a small team into Hope with supplies and then worked on logistics to actually be able to do that to get those items in. And then in, in other areas, it was working with our teams in places like Alberta who were had easier access to certain places, even though we had resources in BC. It was one of those old, you can't get there from here. So bringing in things from other places. So it is about that adaptability and the flexibility. But I think the the key component there is, you know, there's that old saying in disaster and emergency management that the, the disaster is not the time to exchange business cards. It's about developing those relationships beforehand so that you're able to act on those things a lot quicker. And we've seen that work to our advantage time and time again. I remember ordering um, a bunch of grocery supplies so that we could put hampers together for uh, survivors of a disaster. And then when the items were about to come out of the grocery store, it was a Saturday. A lot of people weren't working and they were like, we need you to pay for it before you can do it. But nobody had a credit card with that high of a limit to be able to access them. Fortunately, we've built relationships. And so we were able to actually contact the owners of that grocery store chain who we had a relationship with, explain the situation and say, you know, we can get it out. And so then they were able to make the call to the local store and say, please release the food products. The Salvation Army is good for it. They can't wait until Monday to get those resources. So it is often about building those relationships beforehand, which is why platforms like EML Logistics are so highly important to us because it's about figuring that out and building those relationships long before the disaster. When you were saying sourcing food and whatnot for your aerial insertion kitchen, do you try to make things local? Do you have kind of just-in-time orders for disaster? Or is everything sort of stocked away and, and waiting for the next activation? No, no, always, always just in time. Um, and it's one of the reasons organizations like the Salvation Army, when we do donation appeals, ask for monetary donations as opposed to in-kind. And there's a number of reasons for that. It's easier for us, obviously, to purchase the things that we need, not what people think are needed. It's easier to get things close to the site. And it's a lot cheaper to do that than, you know, transporting them from Newfoundland and Labrador to BC. But also, we do purchase them as close to the affected area as possible, not only because of the ease of it, but it also helps to stimulate the local economy, which can also be impacted by the disaster. The other thing with the just-in-time is it's also understanding that in disaster and emergency management, you know, there's the, there's the day-to-day procurement that you're doing, but when something happens, I need a lot and I need them yesterday, right? And the example that I, I would use, I remember during the 2013 floods in Southern Alberta, ordering something through one of our normal channels, and we were told, oh, we can get those for you in three weeks. And I sort of stepped back and said, no, 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 three weeks is too late, right? I need them yesterday. So we had another relationship that we were able to leverage and say, this is what I need. I need them as quickly as possible. They started pulling them out of their warehouse, airlifted them to us and got them to us the next day. You almost need a bypass password when you're talking to vendors (laughs) to to really get to the people who can make things happen and bump you up in the queue a little bit. Really interesting. One of the, the things I picked out from your story was almost the contradiction between this idea of being fully ready, fully independent, not creating a drag on on local resources and self-sustainable deployment 
and then including local resources and and stimulating local economy because i think a lot of response agencies pride themselves on being completely self-sufficient but that almost leaves a gap for what the the local support systems can do so yeah really, i mean really one, of the, one of the advantages for us grayson is that you know we often say the salvation army has a presence in 400 communities across canada and so you know, it, it's one of those unique things that it, it's the local team as with anything in disaster management. It starts with the local team. We can expand as we need to, but then for the long term, we're able to continue to be there because we're already in that community, right? So we're able to then transition back to our local teams and provide them with additional resources as we need to so that it's not sort of that short-term one and done. And so often we also have that as a part of our incident command structure, we have this function called the aide de camp, which is our local person who provides that local context. And here's, you know, the, the person over here that can get this for you. You know, here's where Joe's garage is and can provide some of those local contexts to provide you so that it's not just, you know, outsiders coming into the community and being able to do it, but we're getting that, that local representative as well. The guy who knows Bobcat Bill. Got it. Exactly. (laughs) Well, speaking of building logistical communities, I'm going to hand it over to Scott Cameron. Tell us a little bit about what what you've been involved in with logistics and what what you're working on as a possible solution. Thanks, Grayson. I'm Scott Cameron. I'm co-founder of a new platform, uh, Emergency Management Logistics Canada. And it really came about because of our lived experience with many of these same stories. And we also come from a community development background. And so, you know, we know that exchanging business cards at the emergency isn't the, the place to do it. We know that, you know, you don't know what you need until you need it. We also know that emergency management organizations were spending a considerable amount of time if they actually had lists of local vendors, uh, they were updating them on, an, on a year-to-year basis. So we just thought there's got to be a better way to be able to share those resources rather than every community going through that process every year. And at the end of the day, the information that you collected is going to be out of date. And um, what I collect in community A is likely exactly the same information as I'm collecting in community B uh, five minutes down the road. So why wouldn't we have a shared database of local businesses and organizations. And especially when, you know, all the stories that we heard today talked about people coming in to assist in a, in a local disaster, whether it's Canada Task Force 2, whether it's the Salvation Army, whether it's somebody from the neighboring community that can get to the community because they're on the opposite side of the road washout. But when you arrive, you don't know who those local vendors are. So we just conceived of this platform that would say, if everybody as emergency management organizations, we signed up so that amongst NGOs and emergency management organizations, we know who's who. That's a good start. But then if each one of them reached out and had a conversation with local businesses who know their way around the community, that local knowledge is so critical. And so how do we smush it all together and create a, a shared database that gives us that element of advantage? And it, and it really, uh, it's such a simple concept, but it, it it is very much that concept that has to happen or it's best to happen in advance. That That's where the idea came from. It's, uh, you know, emergency management organizations, NGOs, local businesses, creating profiles and one simple principle, everybody updates their own information because they've got access to it 24, seven, 365. 
So it just takes the pressure off one individual to create all that content and puts it onto the whole sector to share their information. It sounds a little bit like kind of a disaster Kijiji to me is, <laughs> is a matching of, of resources and needs. And it, honestly, it, it rings bells for me of some of the work that was done in the 2013 Southern Alberta floods with YYC Helps, this sort of uh, online platform to match volunteers with where they might be needed. Yeah, so going back to Tarina's example about uh, sending messages out to vendors, if she posts that event, it sends it out to all of her vendors, those vendors can then respond to, to her request with their offers of support, which her logistics team can then track from the dashboard on the platform and then reach out to them to, to confirm. So it's a, it's a much better process than somebody knowing Tarina trying to phone her on her cell phone while she's in a sit rep or getting out of her truck at the front lines, wherever she is. Because often in local communities, we rely on the director of emergency management who has all the contacts. Well, if they're in Hawaii sitting on a beach, they're not the ones that are going to tell you where to find what you need to find. And, and they're not the ones sitting in the logistics section. That might not even be somebody from the community sitting in your logistics section. So how do you access your local vendors? I often like to, to use the law of physics uh, question, like, is there a law of physics preventing us from doing it? If not, then we can probably figure out a solution. <laughs> Speaking of laws of physics, I think there's one argument around getting things there physically. There's probably another argument around the policy and, and jurisdiction side of things. Tarina, I wonder if you could talk to challenges in navigating supports to First Nations. For sure. I'd love to. We have 27 different First Nations that uh, exist within our, our shared land base area. And um, the 2021 Atmo River event brought uh, to our attention that many of these First Nations actually have their own businesses that wouldn't meet what are as a registered business, but they may actually meet all credentialing and safety requirements and just not be as accessible to us because they primarily serve their own communities. And we learned that there were a number of heavy equipment in the areas of impact that were literally parked, not being requested, not being activated, and could serve with some sense of land understanding and know more about the area truly than we ourselves in, in local government from a centralized area. And so I, I feel that this tool and help amplify the businesses that exist to the benefit of the people, regardless of who the primary authority and primary contractors are. I look forward to seeing how it helps grow relationships with First Nations and their businesses and communities. You know, that's a really interesting point. And it brings up how do you include equity and ethics into how you source out different resources and include different communities and include different uh, contractors? I, I know there have been some really questionable procurement practices during disaster in the name of speed and need. Josh or Perrin, have you come across this at all? I mean, yeah, I, I totally agree with you. We've all probably heard stories uh, from various COCs of um, <laughs> less than ideal procurement, uh, whether it be, you know, we're supposed to have protections with uh, states of local emergency for price gouging and fixing and various things, but not always the case. Uh, unfortunately, there is. So I think we have to be on guard against some of those uh, concerns. The, the other issue I think is just, you know, getting over our own regulations, as, as Trina kind of alluded to, and thinking of non-traditional surge capacity. The, I think the quintessential example 
in North America is still the Cajun Navy in the last example. So there's literally, you know, thousands of people requiring immediate rescue. So it's a life safety priority. We've tapped out the resources of the U.S. Coast Guard. The military is 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 actually getting close to their small boat rescue capabilities and, and already local authorities were overwhelmed. And there was a this reluctance to spontaneous volunteers if you're on the one hand restricting somebody's ability to respond in their own community and then at the same time you don't have a better solution so this is going to happen a time and time again and if we just decide now before the next disaster that life safety trumps procurement processes and that we're going to trust you know people to do work when needed and you know have a, a space for those spontaneous organic responses i think that it kind of helps us ahead of time and, and we might not be able to do the procurement part now but we can make some of those decisions ahead of time and then it kind of offloads that decision making at the time of the incident Scott, is this the sort of stuff that uh, your tool is paying attention to? Or We're certainly trying to. Uh, so we have uh, categories for government, like local government. And, and right from the beginning, we uh, thought about NGOs. And of course, Salvation Army was uh, one of the first to, to jump in. But we've also created a space for uh, community organizations. So while we might not have the SPCA at a national level, uh, it doesn't stop, you know, the Red Deer and District SPCA from create a, a profile on the platform so that they can be accessed by local uh, emergency management organizations. So it doesn't stop a church organization. It doesn't stop anybody that is in a position where they see themselves having capacity to be able to uh, provide support. We did draw the line though at sort of the individuals, you know, the the Bobcat Bills and the and the Chainsaw Charlies, uh, because. You know, there's just no way to verify or validate that they are who they say they are. Um, so we are trying to keep it at an organizational level. As Scott mentioned before, having that verified status, if you will, right, or somebody that is a preferred vendor, I know as an organization, especially if we are looking for somebody as a just-in-time resource, something, you know, one of those unique needs, if a colleague of mine, in particular with another NGO, has them listed as a preferred vendor, I'm going to be a lot more comfortable going with them without all of the normal th processes that we would do because I would trust my colleagues, right, within the emergency management field. So whether that's an NGO or, you know, somebody like Trina, anybody like that who comes out and says, yeah, this is somebody that I use, I'm going to be more comfortable with that. So it's why that piece can be so critical at those just-in-time pieces to know somebody else uses them. And you also know then that if they're used to working with emergency management people, they're used to the way that we do business and how we have to do things and, and all that kind of stuff. So it, it makes it a lot easier transition for us. And I can imagine that would be useful to encourage companies and contractors to pay attention to their disaster reputation, if you like, if it's going to, to feed forward into the future. Everyone, thank you so, so much for joining us on this logistical nightmares discussion. Scott, I'm wondering if you could take us out with a little bit more about the tool and where to find out more. Yeah, the, the site is up and it's ready for people to uh, sign on to. It's uh, emlcanada.ca. Literally, it takes about 15 minutes and then initiate the slow burn in terms of uh, inviting your contacts, your businesses, your community members. And, you know, as we uh, put together a campaign in a box, so social media tools and um, sample letters and everything else that you can use to build community. And our tagline is this year, let's build community. 
because the platform really is about preparing as a community. We sometimes think about emergency preparedness week as making sure you've got your evacuation routes and your 72 hour kit ready, but it's also emergency preparedness for a community. And I would dare say that um, a community that signs on creates a profile, reaches out to their businesses within a week, they could have 30 or 40 businesses up and running on the platform. They're far more prepared on Friday than they were on Monday. Thank you. Thanks everybody. Thanks all. And that's all for this episode of Epic Podcast. A big thanks to Josh, Tarina, Perrin, and Scott for sharing their time and expertise with us on the topic of disaster logistics. And be sure to check out Emergency Management Logistics Canada at www.emlcanada.ca to start building your community resource lists and make that logistical headache go away. Thanks for listening and have a happy emergency preparedness week. Just before we go, I do want to take a moment to thank our sponsors. This episode is brought to you in part by Park Power, your friendly local utilities provider in Alberta, offering internet, electricity, and natural gas with low rates, awesome service, and profit sharing with local charities. In Alberta, you get to choose who to buy your utilities from. If you choose Park Power, you are choosing a positive local business. Plus, Park Power shares its profits with local not-for-profits that are working to make a difference for their communities. Learn more at parkpower.ca. This episode is also brought to you in part by PodPower. Our sponsors are making it possible for us to amplify the voices of Albertans and Alberta podcasters. This episode, the Edmonton Community Foundation is helping us give a PodPower shout-out to Book Woman. Book Woman is a podcast about editing, publishing, and writing Indigenous stories. Three Métis librarians representing nations from across the homeland aim to inspire Indigenous peoples to share their stories in whatever form that they enjoy. Guests include Indigenous storytellers from diverse mediums like podcasting, burlesque, books, comics, social media, films, music, and everything in between. You can listen and find out more at bookwomanpodcast.ca. You've been listening to an Epic Podcast production, a proud partner of the International Association of Emergency Managers Canada and a member of the Alberta Podcast Network. Locally grown, community supported. As always, Epic Podcasts are designed as a supplementary educational tool for the EM professional on the go. The views and opinions explored during this podcast do not necessarily represent the agencies or organizations that we or our guests may belong to. For more information about the show or the people on it, visit our website at epicpodcast.ca or follow us on Twitter at username epicpodcast. Stay tuned for more on the next episode of Epic Podcast, current, relevant, Canadian.